It's our false expectations. Man, it's a blessing to be here uh, this morning, and we are continuing through our series on the Sermon on the Mount. If someone were to say to you, you have to be better at basketball than LeBron James, better at golf than Tiger Woods, there's a certain level of, well, that's not going to happen. I could try, I could, you know, I don't know if you believe in the whole 10,000 hours of practice. You know, I just feel like I could shoot jumpers in the gym all day. I'll never be LeBron James. You know, right before the passage we looked at just a few seconds ago, in verse 20, Jesus says something I think that's just as shocking. And he says this, I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You hear that? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were the experts of the law. 613 commandments found in the first five books of scripture alone. They were the ones who knew it, studied it, figured out how to apply it. They were the ones that were looked up to as the leaders of the the people, the cities, the culture at that time. Here are the experts, the keepers of the law. And you're telling me I have to be more righteous than them. More righteous than them. I want to enter the kingdom of heaven. What we just read in verses 21 to 26, Jesus is going to explain what he just said there in verse 20. But he's going to use the illustration and example of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. So we're going to go through this, and if you're like me, we're going to discover that what Jesus said in verse 20 is so true. But we may grow a little discouraged. We may ask that question, well, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven? So if you hang in there with me till the very end, we'll also talk about that. Because Jesus does explain that very clearly how we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right? So here we go. You know, speaking of Mississippi, uh, just one reminder, Mississippi team, we have a team meeting, 1.30 at headquarters, all right? So we'll start on time. Now here's the thing. When I was asked to lead the Mississippi team this year, you know, I always have a couple of questions. Is Well, first of all, we do two things. We do a basketball camp and we do a mathematics camp, at least in previous years. And my thought has always been I am terrible at both of those things. Right? At basketball, you might as well. It could be any sport. I'm just running up and down the court. And if I survive, it's, it's a success. Mathematics, I remember I used to think I was good at math. That was until my third uh, 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 calculus class in college. Up to that point, I thought I was a genius in math because in my second, I was smart, but because I figured out that our professor basically uses, you know, the C-level questions from the textbook and just, he doesn't even change the numbers. So if you just go through every C-level problem and make sure you know how to do it, you're going to ace his class. And that's what I did. I thought I was so good at calculus. And then I got to the third course, and I realized I know nothing. 
I was exposed. The whole class was about theory and proving things, and I didn't even understand what that meant. I remember getting, you know, math. We had two midterms and a final blank sheets of paper for a math exam, and I'm like, Wait, am, I, am I in the right class? Such a struggle. Exposed. Because I had only practiced how to solve problems. I have become a pretty decent expert at solving C-level textbook problems and calculus. But I didn't understand anything. And Jesus, when he begins to talk about the sixth commandment, I really think what he's trying to do is he's trying to expose the Pharisees, the scribes. You may have observed and kept the commandments at a certain surface level. You don't understand the heart of God's commandment here. You may have practiced it well, because let's be honest, you and I, if we look at the Ten Commandments, if there's a, a, a commandment that we feel like, you know what, here's a commandment, I feel confident since the day of my birth, I have not put someone's life to an end out of anger and hatred. I did not shoot someone, kill someone. I did not do this. I am not guilty, at least of the Sixth Commandment, of breaking that one. And in many ways, that that was the heart of the people at that time. Jesus is speaking to them. He, he sees where they are. And he says, look, you have heard, verse 21. And that's his way of saying, I know you're familiar with this commandment. We find it in, in Exodus, right? Chapter 20, verse 13, thou, you shall not murder. Michael Wilkins, in his commentary, he explains, look, there were seven different possible Hebrew words, at least seven that, that could have been used there to describe killing a, a person and ending someone's life. But that specific word in the old Hebrew language is used here because it describes killing someone with a deliberate, premeditated, Hateful, vengeful, angry, bitter, whatever you wanted, purpose there. So it's a very, very important, um, you know, it's not accidental, right? I mean, what's interesting is even if you look at Deuteronomy 19.5, we're told that an accidental death is not punishable. Uh, it's not the same thing, right? It's an interesting verse as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, right? You think about accidental death, you, you know, you, I don't know what you would think of here in our current times today, but the example here in the Bible is of, you know, chopping wood, and then what happens? The hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, the head flies off the handle, strikes his neighbor, he dies, but you know what? You can flee to a city and live. Killing animals was not covered in the same commandment, Genesis 9.3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. You know what? If you're defending your home, Exodus 22.2, if a thief is found breaking in, so struck that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for it. These are very interesting verses. But you know what? There had been a whole series of rules that people had become familiar with and experts upon. They understood what was murder and what was not murder, and to them, Jesus, when he says, you have heard, that's, he, he's, he's, he's encompassing this idea of, I know you know these rules. You've heard it. You've been taught it. But, right, I say to you, and see, this is the thing that we're seeing in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is is saying, look, these are the principles of my kingdom. This is, this is what I am 
I have brought, when the kingdom of God is at hand, here's what we're talking about. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable, right, to the hell of fire. Now, don't misunderstand what uh, Jesus, if we shoot verse uh, 22 up there, don't, don't misunderstand what Jesus Or you can look in your bulletin. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is doing there. All right. He's not saying, look, here's three, here's the gradation of of murder. Here's like you, you, you're saying murder is, is you have to actually physically kill someone. Well, let me tell you what the sixth commandment really involves. And he's not saying here's the first level, here's the second level, here's the third level. So the first level, you're angry. All right, what happens? You're going to be liable to judgment. Second level, you insult your brother. The council, you have to actually come before the council. Third level, you say someone, you say you fool to someone, uh, it is over, fire of hell. Three levels. No. Jesus is saying the same thing over and over again. You see, one of the side effects of, of making your life about learning, studying, practicing over 600 rules is you try to figure out exactly what you can get away with before it becomes murder. So if I stab someone in the leg and he doesn't die, I haven't killed anyone. If I shoot him in the leg, the foot, maybe he has to amputate, but he lives. That murder. If I hurt that person in other ways, I try to ruin him in his business, I try to ruin his family, I try to take revenge some other way, I say things to him, but I didn't actually end his life. You see, I haven't broken Sixth Commandment. It's like when I was doing youth ministry, I would get asked uh, this question when I was doing campus ministry at college. I would get asked questions like, is it okay to go clubbing, like to dance, but I'm not going to drink. Oh, wait, is it okay to drink, but I don't get drunk? Is it okay, wait, to smoke? Well, what about medical marijuana? It's perfectly legal now in California. Maybe not federal, but legal in our state. Isn't it okay? And so we start adopting the attitude that the scribes and the Pharisees probably had. What can I get away with before I'm actually breaking God's commandment? And to that, Jesus is saying, well, yeah, look, yeah, you may not physically end someone's life premeditated, but where does murder begin? And you see, Jesus is saying the heart of what God was saying when he gave us that commandment, it was a question of the heart. Is there that malice and that anger? Now we know that there must be such a thing as righteous anger because we know from scripture that Jesus was angry, right? When he went into the temple, den of thieves, big, big other sermon. He was angry, but we also know that Jesus never sinned, so there must be such a thing as righteous anger. This is clearly not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the heart that wants to hurt or harm someone and murder someone, but stop short of it because we know either we'll go to jail and that's it or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. The heart 
of this commandment. It's really about what exists in here and not what we do physically. It's like that math exam that I failed. I may have been able to externally practice and solve problems, but I didn't understand it at all. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Yes, maybe you didn't kill someone. But here we go. You know, I grew up in an era where one of the mottos of second grade for me, maybe even first, second, third, I don't know. One of the mottos I was raised under was this, and it may sound familiar to some of you. This is how I'll know who's older. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Do they still say that? Do, do, do our children still say that? Do they learn this? Thing is, that was the motto of, of my childhood. If someone said something to me that was hurtful, racist, whatever, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But the side effect of that was what? I thought my words could never hurt someone. That I could say whatever I wanted to say to someone. I could make whatever kind of joke I wanted to make, whatever I say for a laugh, and it wouldn't hurt someone. Because it's not sticks and stones. In fact, I had to spend many years deprogramming myself from this code of life. Marriage was a pretty quick solution to that. Right? I realized, I have to be careful what I say here. <laughs> you know, in fact, I should have learned it earlier because when I was a kid, if I had done something that broke the law of my father, the, the, the consequence and punishment that I most desired was the physical one. I don't know if it's okay or PC to spank kids. Back then it was, and, and I much preferred spanking over a two-hour lecture that retold every, you know, shortcoming I've had in the past six months. And the retelling of that, again, five minutes later, and then a retelling, that was like torture. I hated it. It hurt so much, and I couldn't stand it. Or like if you're just grounded for a month, that was terrible. But you get spanked, and it's done. You know, the, the problem for my dad is if he spanked me, I paid the penalty. I, I paid the price. I can go do whatever I want again. And if I want to get spanked again, then so be it. But it was over just like that. And I think we forget that our words are actually the things that can have the most long-lasting consequences. The things we say to each other with murderous and angry and hateful intent and purposes, these are the things that can linger and last. Sometimes more than sticks and stones. And so that's why Jesus even says, look, there is this seriousness to what we say to one another. You know, it, it's, uh, for me, it was a great quote, Douglas Sean O'Donnell, he says this, the root of the crime of murder is in the human heart, yet physical murder is not the only bad fruit of that heart. Our tongues can kill as well as our hands. We see... As Jesus explains and exposits the true meaning of the sixth commandment, he teaches us that the law is a spiritual law. It's a lesson that his people must learn, that we must be careful about the heart that we carry around with us, that even our anger 
Even our anger and even our words can violate the sixth commandment. Guilty, liable to the fires of hell. Then he moves on to, I think, something that's really important for us. And I think this is where it gets really difficult. Because he talks about the practical implications of what he's just described. You know, he talks about this heart, the words that we are to say. But what is the, the, the practical implications of this? He says, "Listen, 23, if you're offering your, your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. This is a surprising statement because at that time, the act of offering your gift, your sacrifice, this was a critical and crucial aspect to life in the temple, to life in Jerusalem, to life in Israel. If you were part of God's people, this was really important. Because these offerings, these gifts, these sacrifices, these were things that represented peace with the Heavenly Father. These were the things that represented forgiveness. These were the things that represented right standing before God. These were the things that allowed you to be a part of church temple life. It's not a small matter. It's not an optional thing. But he says, if you're there, and at that moment you remember, your brother has something against you. This is also an important thing that might be a little surprising because you would expect him to say that you did something, that, that someone, you know, but it's the opposite. Someone doesn't like you. We would expect in this situation for Jesus to use the example and illustration of, you have anger in your heart. You have said these things and you hate someone. You have murderous thoughts in your heart for, towards someone. Stop. Go reconcile with that brother. But he gives the opposite situation. The situation is completely reversed. You've offended someone and that person. You've caused that person to break the sixth commandment. And he says, stop what you're doing. Go and be reconciled first. It would be like me staying, standing before you today and go, hey, 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 stop. Come on. Let's go first be reconciled to our brothers who are angry with us. And then come back and give your offering. What church does that today? But Jesus has placed such a priority and importance on reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. Why? Because the heart of keeping the sixth commandment is not just not being angry with strangers. It goes even deeper than that. It's talking about the types of relationships we ought to have with fellow brothers and sisters. There is a heart of love that must exist in order for us to keep this commandment. 
A heart that is concerned with whether we are offending others, with whether we are causing others to sin, and a heart that says we must care about these things, that I can't just come to church and say, oh, well, that's his or her problem. That we can't just practice the externals and say none of this matters. As long as I do this well, as long as I faithfully attend church, it doesn't matter what my relationships with others are like. Christ doesn't seem to be saying that here, does he? He gives a different example starting in verse 25. He talks about the, uh, a sort of a legal situation. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Some translations even understand this to mean make friends quickly with your accuser. It's not talking about settlements in terms of maybe how we would understand settlements today. All right, let's just pay them. Let's be done with this. Let's never see each other again. We are done. All right, I'm giving you this check. We're done. Settled. Talking about relationships. Remember I said, this may be one of the hardest commandments when Jesus starts to explain, when he starts to say, see, your righteousness has to be even better than the Pharisees. He's saying the Pharisees are giving you an incorrect version of keeping this law. Here's the correct version. You can't hate. You can't murder people with your thoughts. You can't murder people with your words. You can't just keep coming to church as if nothing had happened with your brothers or sisters. There's fights. You've sinned against each other. You're angry with you. You cause someone to sin, break the sixth commandment. You can't just ignore that. This is hard stuff, you guys. This is community. But what it does is it reflects the heart of Christ. Christ didn't just look at us as a bunch of murderers and say, well, as long as I don't murder them, I'm okay. He filled his existence and his heart with love for us, a genuine love, not based on who we are, based on who he is. It's interesting to think about this Advice that Christ gives to us to settle matters quickly, to come to terms quickly, to make friends quickly. One of the saddest stories I've ever heard happened in 2012 of June in South Dakota. 73-year-old man, Carl Erickson, sentenced to life in prison after admitting to the murder of a former high school classmate. Norman Johnson shocked all his friends all his family members, all his neighbors. Been married for 44 years. But after the murder, what happened came out. Fifth, over 50 years ago, before, before the murder, Norman Johnson had pulled a locker room prank, put a jock strap on Carl Erickson's head, and embarrassed and humiliated him in front of others. For 50 years, that moment of embarrassment grew. The bitterness, the anger, the hurt, 
until one day he rang Johnson's doorbell. And when Johnson answered the door, shot him dead. And in court, he said this during his sentencing. I guess it was from something that happened over 50 years ago. It was apparently in my subconscious. I just wish I could turn the calendar back. Sad story. In so many ways, though, I feel like it illustrates so many things that Christ was talking about here. That one moment of, I don't know, maybe for Norman Johnson, he thought it was pretty harmless, something funny, something fun. Did it in the immaturity of his youth in high school. I mean, how many of us had not, has not done something when we're young that we're embarrassed by? Today. And over time, because of the fact that they could not reconcile, The fact that the sixth commandment had been broken, murder and anger in the heart, the causing of that sixth commandment to be broken by something what we may say is so simple, led to the tragic end of one's life, tragic ending of another man's life. Life in prison for a 73-year-old man. Today, you and I may look at what Jesus describes in verses 21 to 26, and we may say, what? Well, who then could ever enter into the kingdom of heaven? Who amongst us has not had this kind of anger in our hearts? Who amongst us has never said to someone, you fool? Who's here, who's never insulted someone? Which one of us is not guilty and liable? You know, right before Christ explains in verses 21 to 26. And even before he talks about the righteousness that we have to have that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he explains that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, he says. Look, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, meaning not a single part, not even a little dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. I've come to fulfill them. You see, for those of us who try to enter the kingdom of heaven by keeping the law, it's not going to work. Never will. And that was not the intent of God giving the law. The intent of God giving the law was to find in Christ the solution to our sinfulness that is exposed by the law. He fulfills it. He keeps it perfectly, but he also gives the righteousness that he earns by keeping it to us and declares us to be righteous. So it's like this. We don't earn life by not murdering someone and keeping the sixth commandment the way Jesus describes it. We don't. Jesus earns it for us, and then he gives it to us, but the life that has been given to us, there are certain standards and principles to that life. Verses 21 to 26. I'll close with this illustration to try and describe that. For those of us who are parents, 
And even if you have parents, we under, I think we could understand this. We can say to our children, look, I am your father, I'm your mother, you're my child. You didn't choose me. Maybe I didn't even choose you. God chose this. As your parent, provide shelter, provide a roof over your head, provide food. I care for you, I'll nourish you, I'll feed you. But as long as you live under this roof, here are the rules of my house. Right? Now, we don't say to our children, you are only a child by obeying those rules. You're only my child if you keep those rules. In fact, when our children break the principles and rules we've set up, we don't automatically kick them out and say, you're banished from the household of Samo. No longer my child. But we still call them the principles of our house. We're not children of God because we've kept the sixth commandment perfectly. But now that we are a part of his kingdom, He does call us to keep it. Amen? And keeping it doesn't mean we see what we can get away with. So much more. Praise, praise, praise the Lord. That is not up to our ability to keep it. Up to the ability of Christ. Amen? That's why we can sing. That's why we can pray. That's why we can worship. That's why we can have the guts to go to Mississippi and teach basketball. Because the confidence that Christ gives us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel and we thank you for the word. We know that we struggle to keep that unrighteous anger out of our hearts. We struggle to speak in a way that would always encourage and help and benefit others. The things we say are pretty hurtful at times, Lord. We ask for your forgiveness, but we also ask for your help, your strength, the ability that the Holy Spirit can give to us to follow and to obey. We thank you for the life you give to us, but we want to also live that life out the way you desire. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.